through Chronicles. Now, remember what we said many times here with Chronicles. These guys are given to us as an example. Paul wrote in Corinthians that these Old Testament people were given to us an example of what to do, but also of what not to do. So, we were first introduced to Saul a few chapters ago, and then we were introduced to David for the last couple chapters, and last week we talked about David's mighty men. Well, the Bible, in all its brutal honesty, presents the good, the bad, and the ugly. Here in chapter 13, you see David, and David has a heart. He does. He has the right motives, but it's bad follow-through. Now, he'll fix it in a couple chapters. But at this moment, he has the right heart, but he has the bad follow-through. If you're a note-taker, just write down these two verses. First one is Proverbs 14, verse 12. Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And one more, Proverbs 16, 25. Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, why would God repeat himself? You've heard me say this many times out here. If God says it once, it's important. If God starts saying it twice, you better be paying attention. He says the exact same verse within two chapters of each other. He's trying to tell us what? There is a way to you and I that sure seems right. It makes sense. On paper, it's logical. On paper, it sure looks good. Why would God not be in this? But then as you go into it and it happens, you start realizing what went wrong. This is what happens with David. He's got the right motives. He's got the wrong follow-through. How can we learn from this? And this is what we're going to talk about here tonight. 1 Chronicles 13, verse 1. Then David consulted with the captains of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you and if it is of the Lord our God, let us send out to our brethren everywhere who are left in all the land of Israel and with them to their priests and Levites who are in their cities and their common lands that they may gather together to us. And let us bring the ark of our God back to us. for We have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David gathered all Israel together from Shahor to Egypt to as far as the entrance of Amath to bring the ark of God from Kerjeth Jeriam. So, what does he have going on here? He has his first congregational meeting. He talks with everybody. Hey, this sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Verse 1, we're going to consult with captains of thousands and of hundreds. We'll consult with every leader. He says to the whole assembly in verse 2, Hey guys, I got an idea. If everybody thinks this is a good idea, then let's just assume that the Lord's in it and let's do it. Verse 4, they all said, sounds like a good idea. What's their idea? Let's bring the ark to Jerusalem. Now, we'll get to in a little bit on why the ark wasn't at Jerusalem. That's a good idea, David. I mean, it really is. The ark should be there. That's where it should be. Right motives, but bad follow-through. What's the first thing we see? We start seeing humans getting together and sharing human wisdom and logic and getting a great human answer. Boy, it's a dangerous thing when you get a bunch of humans together in the same room. And one of the most dangerous questions you could ever ask somebody else is, Hey, what do you think? It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what I think. What matters is, what is the Lord leading us to do? With all this consultation that David has, with captains of thousands, captains of hundreds, to the whole assembly, and everybody agrees, never once does it say, let's inquire of the Lord. 
So we have to make sure that when we are seeking wisdom, we're seeking God's wisdom. You ask 100 people, you'll get 100 opinions. And it just absolutely blows my mind when I run into brothers and sisters in the Lord that are going through tough decisions. And they come up to me and they say, hey, I'm struggling with this decision. What do you think? My first response is usually, well, when you pray about it, what does the Lord say? Well, I was talking to this gal at work. And she thinks I should do this. Is this gal an on-fire born-again believer that's getting the scriptures out? Well, no, but I've known her for a lot of years, and she only wants what's best for me. That's still human wisdom. Well, I talk to my mom. I talk to my dad. I talk to my spouse. And they all think this. Jeremiah tells me that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it except I, says the Lord. If I try to give somebody counsel or advice, I try to make sure there's a scripture backing it up. You don't want my opinion. You want the opinion of the creator of the universe. That's what you want. What you see here in David, he gets everybody's idea, he gets everybody's opinion, and this just sounds like a really good idea. Verse 3, and let us bring the ark of our God back to us. Verse 4, all the assemblies said they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. You don't have to be too much of a student of history to go back in time and look at individuals that made decisions that they were thought were right in the sight of all the people. Now, most of the time, we're not honest about this, are we? We keep asking people for their opinion because we want to collect a lot of wisdom and counsel and guidance. Most of the time, we're just waiting for that one person to say what we want to hear. In the 20 years I've been doing counseling with people, I've only had one person be completely, utterly, brutally honest. They came and they asked, what do you think? This is what the scripture says. Well, I was talking to this person. I was talking to this person. I was talking to this person. And I asked them, are you just going to keep going around and talking to people until you find the person that agrees with you? They said, yeah. It's the only person that's ever been completely honest. Everybody else usually kind of pushes it off. No, no. I I'm just, I'm really just want to see what people think. I'm just going to tell you right now, if you're really seeking the Lord on something, best thing you could do, just be like Jesus in Mark 1. Go out into the wilderness, pray to your Heavenly Father, spend some time in prayer and fasting, and seek Him in His Word. He'll lead you. He'll guide you. The Word promises that. Does that mean that you can't get godly wisdom for other brothers and sisters in the Lord? No, of course you can. The Bible says there's wisdom in the counsel of many. But make sure your primary source of leading is always the Lord, always His Scriptures, and not what man thinks. And if you're going to go ask man what they think, seek godly wisdom on-fire, biblical counsel and wisdom that's backed up with Scripture. David has the right motives, but he has the bad follow-through. So the big thing here is the ark. Let's talk about the ark real quick. Dustin, can you put that picture up real quick? Just to kind of remind you of what the ark looks like. This is what we're talking about right here. Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant is very, very Very important. Roughly speaking here, it's about three to four foot long. It's about two to two and a half feet wide, about two to two and a half feet high, built out of wood, covered in gold. It contains three different items. It contains the law that God gave to Moses. It contains a pot of manna to remind them of what they went through the wilderness and also contains Aaron's rod that budded. This represented in the Old Testament God's presence on the earth. 
This is, this is what it represented. The ark would have been in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or on the temple. And only one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, could the high priest go in and actually have access to this and to God. And they would take blood and they would sprinkle it on it. So this in the Old Testament represented God's presence on this earth. And it was only allowed to have access one day of year. Now, it was moved around. And to move it around, you had to be carried by Levites. And as you can kind of see there, there was poles that you had to carry it. And before you would move it, you would actually take this very special covering that was blue. And it was a special covering. You would actually cover the ark up. So as you're moving it, no one would even see it. Now, in the book of Joshua, as they're moving the ark, the ark stayed a good half mile ahead of everybody. And we know in the Old Testament, they would take the ark to places first. Like before they crossed the Jordan River, the ark went ahead of them. And when the ark got to the water, the water split. When the walls of Jericho came tumbling down, it was the ark that marched around. When they would go into battle, the ark would lead them into battle. This is God's presence on earth in the Old Testament. Now, we don't know where the ark is at, right? But I'm just going to throw this out there real quick. Ryan Powell, where's the ark at? In a government warehouse. In a government warehouse. Ryan and I have this ongoing joke. And who found the ark, Ryan? Indiana Indiana Jones. (laughs) Just for the record, I'm not making this up. This picture came from an Indiana Jones website. I'm just telling you right now, it it really honestly did. So the ark is the centerpiece of connection to God in the Old Testament. The ark at this time here in Chronicles has not been around for 70 years. So if you look at verse 3, it says right here, Let us bring back the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. That's how long it's been since they've really had the ark to inquire of. This was a big deal. I can't stress this enough. David has the right motives. He really does. It's the follow-through that goes completely downhill here in a little bit. But he has the right motives. And it goes back to the first two verses that we read. There is a way that seems right unto man, but in the end it brings forth death. So there's a way that seems right to David and the people to do, but in the end it brings forth death. So now as we get ready to go into actually what happens here as they get ready to move the ark, does anybody have any quick questions, comments about the ark here? Yeah, Nancy. Mm-hmm. That would be the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It's in, uh, roughly in the fall, and they were allowed to go in one day a year, and they would make atonement for all the sins of the nation of Israel. So that was the one day a year they were allowed to go in. Yeah. Anybody else have any other questions about the ark before we move on? Yeah, Mary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Bible tells us, once again, those three things were in the ark. The law that God gave Moses, the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. And if you go back and study that out in the Old Testament, obviously those three things represent a lot. The law obviously represents God's authority. He's the law. The manna represents God's faithfulness for the 40 years of wandering. And Aaron's rod that budded, that was the rod that showed the leadership of Moses and Aaron and God's miraculous leading of them. So those are the three items that are in the ark of the covenant. Yeah. That is, you know, they're just talking about claiming to know where the ark is. I got online just for fun, and I found at least five places that claim they have the ark. Uh, France claims it. Germany claims it. Egypt claims it. Also, my favorite one, before World War I started, 
the uh, Freemasons brought it over to the United States. So it's, it's here somewhere. We just don't know where. Um, everybody claims to have it, but it's really kind of interesting, and we've talked about this many times before. This is not some conspiracy theory. They want to rebuild a temple. I mean, they want to rebuild a temple, and we know from biblical prophecy they are going to rebuild a temple. And you can get right on the website. This is all real stuff. They've made the garments. You've mentioned to me, I've, I've mentioned to you before, they're trying to get the ashes of a red heifer, which you know from the Old Testament is very important. And supposedly people with authority and supposedly people that know what they're doing say, we actually know where the ark's at. It's kind of a fascinating thing. Anybody else have anything here? Ryan. Another place that claims to have the ark of Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Yes, Ethiopia as well, too. Yep. Everybody's got a piece of it. Jody. So There is, and like Jody was saying there, there is this institution that desires this. They want this. And to, you know, a certain group of Judaism, it's a, obviously a huge deal. And you mentioned the menorah there. And like I said, you can get online and see all these things. You can see the garb that they're actually doing. I just read an article not too long ago where they're claiming that they're actually trying to train young men about how to be the priests. I mean, this is something that's moving over there. And I remember when I first got saved 22 years ago, um, you first heard rumblings of this. Like I said, it sounded like some type of conspiracy theory. It's not. This is what they're trying to do. So it's kind of a fascinating thing. We know the temple is going to be rebuilt. We know that's going to happen. And you see the puzzle pieces coming together right here in front of us. So you see the importance of the ark, why David wants it back. They haven't had it for 70 years. Right motives, bad follow-through, what happens? Verse 6, And David and all Israel went up to Bala, to Kerjeth Jerim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abnadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to Chidion's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. It's quite a way to bring a party down. Um, What happened? Right motives, bad follow-through. What went wrong? I mean, they're doing everything right. Verse 7, brand new cart. It's not that they just went down to Farmer Bill and got his cart. Brand new cart for the ark. I mean, verse 8, passionate music. This should all be clicking. Let's find out what went wrong. Jump back to 1 Samuel 4. 1 Samuel 4. 
How did the ark even get to where it's at? And what can we learn? Remember, these are given to us as examples. Why has it been 70 years since they've had the ark? Why was the ark at this location just sitting there? What happened? Okay, we're going to go on a quick whirlwind tour here. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Long story short, Israelites are going into battle against the Philistines. As they're going into battle against the Philistines, the Lord is using this opportunity to judge Eli's family. Eli at this time was one of the priests there, the high priest, and his sons were awful. There's no way around that. And God says, I'm going to use this time as a time of judgment on your family, Eli. 1 Samuel 4, verse 11. They go into battle. The Philistines are victorious, verse 11. Also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So the ark is captured, and Eli's sons are killed because of judgment that's coming on Eli's family. Stay in chapter 4. Go to verse 17. Messenger comes to tell Eli what's going on. The messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. God brought this judgment on his family because Eli would not raise his sons in a godly way. This paves the way for Samuel now to come in. But the ark has been captured, verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. She named the child Ichabob, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because her father-in-law and her husband. Then she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This is huge. This is huge. The presence of God was captured. I mean, the, the, the ark that, that crossed the Jordan, the ark that brought down the walls of Jericho, the ark that led them into battle, God's presence was captured. Now, obviously, you know God is not a God of weakness. There's something else that's going to happen. So now the ark has been captured. This paves the way for Samuel to be the last judge and prophet. First Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines have the ark. What would you do with the ark? Well, verse 1, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Dagon was their god, the fish god. So they put the ark in front of the fish god to basically say, hey, our god's bigger than your god. Verse 3, when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon, fallen on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in his place again. No worry, God fell down, no big deal. Let's just pick God back up. And everything will be fine. Verse 4. When they rose early the next morning, there was Dagon falling his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were broken off. On the threshold, only Dagon's torso was left of it. Okay, a little bit of a bigger problem here. Our God fell down and broke a few legs. Verse 5. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them, struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. Okay, the word there for tumors in verse 6, the Bible is just trying to be polite. That's actually hemorrhoids. Just throwing that out there. These guys were cursed for having this. 
So verse 7, when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us and Dagon our God. The Philistines didn't capture the ark of the covenant. God allowed this to happen. What a great witnessing tool. Right now you have unsafe friends and loved ones, and they have set up their own little temple. They got their own little Dagon in their life. God says, let me into their life and let their God fall down and break into pieces. You have to allow loved ones that don't know Christ to be broken. You have to. So often when with our loved ones, we want everything to come together. And Lord, don't allow anything in their lives. Lord, they just need to know you. What do I see right here? Their statue, their idol has to fall. And it has to be broken before the ark of God. So if you have an unsaved loved one, let them fall apart. Because that's the way they will come to realize who God really is. So, Dagon falls. They're judged with these tumors, these piles, these hemorrhoids. So what do they decide to do? They decide to send the ark back to Israel. So what do they do in Acts, excuse me, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 11? They set the ark of the Lord on a what? A cart. And the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. I know that sounds weird. That's what they did. They made a gold idol of rats and a gold idol of a hemorrhoid, put it on the cart, and sent it back to Israel. They were trying to find a way to appease God and basically said, you have cursed us with rats and hemorrhoids, so we've made a molded image of it, and we're sending it back to you. And they stuck it on a cart. Now, keep your hand here because we're not done yet. What did David put the ark on? A brand new cart. How did the ark come back 70 years ago? On a cart. Well, that just makes sense, right? That's obviously what we're supposed to do. They put it on a cart, so we're going to go ahead and put it on a cart. What are they doing? They're copying the world. Jump ahead, if you will, quick to verse 19. Ark starts getting back into Israeli territory. Verse 19, Then he, meaning God, struck the men of Beth Shehem, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,000 and 70 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. The ark shows up on this cart. Guess what the Jews do? Hey, guys, that's the ark. Let's go look inside. Back to our Raiders of the Lost Ark. You never open the ark. There was no respect for God. There was no respect for who he was. We're going to put the ark on a cart, so they're going to put the ark on a cart. We're going to touch the ark, they touch the ark. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Then the men of Kerjeth Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord, brought it into the house of Abdabdon on the hill, and consecrated Elziar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. That's why the ark is at Kerjeth Jerim. They put it there, and they basically said, We're not touching this thing for 70 years. Now let's bring this all together. David, right motives, bad follow through. How is the ark supposed to be carried? Levites on poles. That's explained explicitly in the scripture. Two chapters from now in 1 Chronicles 15, when they move the ark a second time, guess what they do? Levites with poles. Are you supposed to even look at the, touch the ark, look at it? No. Well, didn't they learn that 70 years ago when all those men died? No, Uzziah. Well, how can we pick an Uzziah? I mean, the guy was just trying to be right, right? I mean, shouldn't God give him a little bit of grace? Uzzah's name means strength. Remember that. His name means strength. You have no strength to come to God on your own. 
I mean, so does God let people into heaven because they meant to kind of accept him, but they never got around to it? I mean, is Jesus on the final day of judgment going to look at non-believers and say, you know what? You never accepted me as Lord and Savior, but you were a pretty decent person. No, your strength can't get you into heaven. Uzzah's name means strength. He can't touch the ark. No one can. It's supposed to be covered. It's supposed to be carried the right way. You don't stick it on a cart. You do it the right way. David is just repeating what he saw the world do. Do you see how often that happens in ministry and church? We just copy the world. Because we want to be fun and fresh and exciting, so we're going to copy what the world does. And then we wonder why the ministry flatlines. It's not about trying to recreate the bells and whistles of the world. As a church, as a body of Christ in this world today, you can never compete with the bells and whistles of the world. And do you realize that God has never asked you to? He just tells you to do what? Preach the word, proclaim Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. David is trying to copy the world. We're going to put the ark on a cart like they did. won't work. That's not the way God intended it. Uzzah is trying to do the right thing. But by his strength, he's trying to keep the ark from falling. No, if they would have done it the right way, it wouldn't be in that position. We just talked about this on Sunday, Matthew 26, 41. Jesus said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That flesh is weak, it literally means the flesh has no strength. The spirit is willing... And as we mentioned just a couple Sundays ago, I'm willing to do a lot for the Lord. Oh, man, I want to be in the Word. I want to tell everybody about Jesus. I want to spend all my time in worship. My spirit is willing, but my flesh, oh, man, my flesh gets lazy. My, my flesh gets distracted. And as we just mentioned on Sunday, this ongoing process as a believer to die to ourselves. But what happens when we don't die to ourselves? We're like Uzzah. And our strength, trying to approach God in the ark, touching things we shouldn't be touching, and then wondering, why did we get judged? Because we were trying to do it on our own. What can we learn from David at this point? Don't ever copy the world. Don't ever try to do what the world does. If you're involved in any type of ministry, your focus is Acts 2.42. Continue steadfastly in the word of God, proclaiming who Jesus Christ is. That's what we're supposed to do. Nothing else matters. And just keep moving forward in the Lord's strength, not your strength. I've seen a lot of ministries have some initial success because there's a fervor and a fire in the strength of the flesh. Man, it's got to be in the spirit. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's what we got to remember. Part of this 40 days of praying and fasting is reminding us that it has nothing to do with us in any way whatsoever. It's all about proclaiming Jesus. And I'm telling you right now, I could give you example after example after example of my life where I thought I nailed that message. And no one got anything out of it. And there's been times where I've given a message and it's like, oh my, do I, is the board going to fire me today or are they going to wait till Monday? You know, I don't know. And that's the one where you guys are like, James, I got so much out of it. And I don't mean this cocky. I'm like, what did you get out of that? Because I don't know. It's the Holy Spirit. There's been times where you witness to someone, you're like, man, they're going to come to Christ right here, right now. Nothing happens. There's other times where like, I completely messed up that verse. I completely messed up that. And next thing you know, that person's going deeper in the Lord. It's not us. It's Jesus. 
He's just asked us to be obedient to do it His way. So my motives are right. I want to get the ark back to where it's supposed to be. Okay, but do it the right way, David. Use the Levites. Cover the ark. Put the poles in it. Don't stick it on the cart. Well, no, no, no. We got a brand new cart. It's a, it's a nice cart. It's not the way God wants it. Oh, but we got really great music in front of the ark. Yeah, David, it's not about the music. It's about obedience. And that's what David needs to focus on. So Uzzah touches it. Uzzah dies. It's a representation of our strength trying to come to God. We can't do that. What's the result of this? Verse 11, David became angry. Because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, therefore the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. I have noticed in my own life, I'm just throwing it out there, when I am angry and when I am frustrated, it's because I'm not in God's perfect will for my life. When I do not have joy and I'm walking in frustration and I'm getting myself all ticked off about this or that, it's because I'm not where God wants me to be. When I am in God's perfect will, I'm not walking in anger and frustration I'm not sitting there in confusion saying, what did I do wrong? Verse 12, David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God to me? Well, in two chapters, he figures it out. You know what he simply says in 1 Chronicles 15? He says, guys, I was wrong. Levites, you're supposed to do it. No one else. And he comes back in 1 Chronicles 15, and he says, we're going to do it the right way this time. Verse 13, so David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, but took it aside the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. See, God's not bad. God's not nasty. He's a loving God. He wants to bless us. He just asks us to be obedient. He just asks us to do it His way. What I want to close with is this. Can you go to James 3, please? James 3. Here in James 3, we see the difference between walking in the flesh and anger and confusion versus walking in the spirit and peace. James 3, verse 16. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. That's the truth. If I'm walking in envy or only seeking my own personal pleasures and desires, I'm going to be confused. There's going to be evil. But verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. See, God's wisdom is pure, peaceable, willing to yield. Verse 18, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay, just real quick, ask ourselves this. Are we walking in verse 16? Envy, self-seeking, confusion, and evilness? Okay, that's the flesh. Or am I walking in verse 17? Peace, peaceable, willing to yield. Okay, my life may not be perfect, but Lord, I'm where you want me to be. See, David in 1 Chronicles 13, it's it's self-seeking, it's confusion. Yeah, his motives were right, but his follow-through was wrong. David in 1 Chronicles 15... Humbled, peaceable. We're going to do this the right way, guys. And then all of a sudden, it comes together. And I just want to encourage you in your life. I don't know where you're at. You're here tonight on a Wednesday night because obviously you desire something more in your life. You you want something to be different. And your own walk with the Lord and your marriage and your witness, I don't know what it is. Okay, what chapter are you in? 
Are you in First Chronicles 13 where you're just going to do it and we're going to figure this out and we're going to get it done and you wonder why it just keeps falling apart? Maybe you're not doing it God's right way, but your motives are pure, but you're not doing it God's right way. Or are you in First Chronicles 15, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, where God says, yeah, do it this way, and then it all comes together. And it makes sense because it's obedient. It's obedient to the Lord. Anybody have any final questions, comments here? Ryan. Yeah. It actually is, uh, I read that online today, and I do believe, I'm not making this up, the group that claims to have the ark, I believe in Ethiopia, claims that you can do different powers with the ark, and one of them is electricity. I mean, it's just the silliness that comes out there. The ark becomes some type of supposed power thing rather than the presence of God. Kathy. No, this would have been a good push in 70 years. And David at this time is probably 40s. So no, he wouldn't have been alive. We, we know from piecing this all together, this actually happened even before Saul reigned. And the ark stayed there for about 20 years. So yeah, this has been, um, it's about 70 years since this happened. So he would not have seen it. But you would sure think that this would have been remembered I mean, especially if you're dealing with what was it? And I don't got it open in front of me. First Samuel six, forty some thousand people dying, um, fifty thousand and seventy men. So you would sure think that would be remembered there. Samuel was alive at the time, though. So Samuel would obviously remembered it, and he knew David, and he knew Saul, etc. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Yeah, tweets. Yeah, that is. Carried by the Levites. Uh, We're looking here at Numbers chapter 4. And also, let me find the other one here. Um, Joshua chapter 3, I believe. Numbers 4 and Joshua 3, I believe, if I got those references right. What you... Well... Right. Right. Well, um, since you opened the can of worms, Renee, let's go to First Chronicles 15, and let's just go one more hour here real quick. If you see in First Chronicles 15, um, what happens is verse 12. He calls all of Israel together, just like he did last time, but this is what he does. Look at verse 4. David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites. See, this is different this time. He doesn't call everybody. He calls the religious leadership. And he comes right out and says in verse 12, He said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourself and you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult Him about the proper order. Verse 14, So the priests and Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And so what happens is, it seems to be a conviction. Uh, David, in wisdom, was taught. Because it goes back to verse uh, 1 of chapter 15. David built for himself houses in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God, pitched a tent for it. Verse 2 is key. David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. So there seems to be a hint in there somewhere that David got this figured out um, and said, Okay, this is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, Jody. So in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 13, 
No, I, I, good question. I think in verses 13 and 14, David basically put the ark there, as it says in verse 12, almost out of fear. And I think the Lord basically just said very graciously, okay, your heart is so humbled now, your heart is so broken now, you're not trying to do this the wrong way, and allowed it to happen. Because it kind of goes back to what we talked about in 1 Samuel 6, that house at Kerajeth Jerim was willing to take it. and almost seems to be just a humbleness about that. So it doesn't come out and say, why didn't God judge them? I think the Lord got his point across. And I do firmly believe that God is a God that just needs to get his point across out of love. And once he gets his point across, it's not that he's trying to really you know, curse anybody. He wants to bless. And I think it's important that the Lord allowed this to happen to show both sides of this. Okay, David, you messed up. David, this didn't go right. David, you're walking in fear. Okay, now David... Just take a step back and let's talk about this. Because if I remember correctly, I think there was only about three months between chapters 13 and 15. Don't quote me on that. So it was there for about three months. And it sounds like David for those three months kind of said, what did I do wrong? He kind of figured it out. But I agree with you, Jody. He doesn't come out and say exactly why. But it looks like God had a heart of grace there to say, okay, you didn't figure this out. Let's give it a little bit of time and come back to it. That's the way I kind of take it. Anybody else have anything before we close up? Yeah, Kathy. What's, yeah, I bet, I bet they didn't touch it. I bet they didn't look at it. Um, if I was Obed-Edom, I would tell my boys, stay out of the barn. Um, just stay away from it for right now. So, yeah, there seemed to be a humbleness about that. And you know what? Isn't that kind of neat? Here's this Obed-Edom guy, and he's just blessed. He was willing to take it, and he was blessed for that. So, anybody else have anything? Yeah, Krista. The Masonic Temple in downtown where? In Defiance. Uh, the box. Wow. It looked just like that in the picture. Well, you know what? Let's get the church bus. We're going on a field trip. <laughs> We're going to go to Defiance and see the ark. Just don't open it because you know what happens if you open it. So it doesn't go good. All right. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be humble and seeking you and searching you. And we just want to do it your way. We just want to do it your way. Help us, Lord, to never feel this burden or pressure to try to do it like the world or to have to compete, Lord. It's just representing you and doing it your way, Lord. You've given us a pattern to follow. Help us to follow that pattern. Help us to learn from our mistakes, to walk in a humbleness, and just to say, okay, Lord, your word says to do it, so I'm going to be obedient to it. Thank you, Lord, for your love, your grace, and your mercy. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to have a quick time of prayer up here. It's almost 8 o'clock. So if you have anything you want to pray over, come on up. There will be some people up here that we can pray with you. If not, have a good week, and God bless.